1: Rocks Across the Pond. It's a curling podcast coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. My name is Ryan McGee, and joining me in Southampton, England, is our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, recently a team that had to play three handed due to COVID reasons won a very major championship. Yes, me, and, yeah, and that was <laughs> you, yes, at the English mix. So I just want yeah. to say saying congratulations,
0: <laughs> thanks, <laughs> yes, yes, we did. It was, uh, it was quite an adventure,
1: yeah, it looks like it. Um, but yeah, you guys won with, with three people at the English mixed championships, which means that assuming that. The world mix happens again. You will be participating in Aberdeen, Scotland. So, uh, congratulations on your second English championship.
0: Yeah, no, it was it was a wild one. So we, so okay. First of all, having done it, it's hard. I think everyone's gonna be like, "Oh, Gushu did it." Then this loser did it. So anyone can do it. Um, it is definitely harder with three um that's the first thing so for us it was slightly different we I got texts so Kerr who's been on the podcast so Kerr Alexander he was the one who actually put the mix team together uh and asked me back what back we had to sign up in August and then he texted me the Friday before the mix so a week on he's like my wife just tested positive for COVID and so then it it was like this is not a good sign and Sunday is like my daughter tested positive for COVID, and, and we're, then,
1: we're laughing because they're all okay. They are
0: all okay, <laughs> but basically, and then it was Monday. It was his son, and then Wednesday he woke up with COVID, and then at the same time our lead Samantha texted, and she's like, "I also woke up with a fever and tested positive for COVID today." So there's there's a bit of a COVID spike again in South of England. So they like they don't they have no interaction with each other. So it's just like bad luck. Um. Under our rules, you have to. You can change your team lineup up until 24 hours before the competition. So I emailed our our council, and they're like, if "You can find a player. If you can find players to replace by, um, by noon tomorrow. We'll let you play." So <laughs> uh, I emailed basically everyone I could think of, <laughs> and English College is you... pretty small. Is first of all. <laughs> Yeah. Did
1: you email Peter de Cruz because I think he's eligible for England?
0: He's not eligible because he's played for Switzerland within the last two years. Okay. But the second he stops playing for Switzerland for two years, I will be sliding into his DMs. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, uh, so basically, emailed everyone I could think of. Uh, Michael Opel said yes on the men's side. On the women's side. I think I emailed 12 different women. uh, So I haven't been rejected that much since high school. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I mean, I think the most, they were all like very polite replies, but it's, you can understand it's like Thursday. It's basically Wednesday afternoon, Thursday morning. And it's like, can you book tomorrow off work? Come play with a team. It's just like all all the things they'd have to do on short notice. And people Mm -hmm. are like, I already have weekend plans, this, that. They, They couldn't do it. So You are allowed under uh, mixed rules to play three-person. You're also allowed, there's actually what's called an exceptional circumstances clause. It says you can start a competition three-handed. So we we kind of had to consult the rule book very closely. It's a petition to council. They had to set up a committee of three to decide if two people testing positive with COVID in the space of a day is is, um, exceptional circumstances. So they did uh and then and uh, honestly that all right so the weird thing about it is like it wasn't just that that didn't work it's like fiona who's our skip like her train broke down on the way to the rick and so like you're allowed to start with three but not with two right so (laughs) like my it was so hectic and chaotic i just was like i just want to play i just want to not default was my goal and I think that was the goal for our whole team. And I think that kind of put us in this weird headspace where we just weren't even thinking of winning. And then basically everything went wrong until we got on the ice. And then we got on the ice and basically no one could wow. miss. And we just kind of you know, went undefeated. It was kind of a pretty pretty surreal weekend. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> so that's my story.
1: <laughs> but we are not here to talk about the English mixed. We are here to talk about Swedish curling. And we have a very wonderful guest. In fact, uh, she's back, Sara Carlson. Uh, She was previously on the show when we talked about the Global Initiative for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in Curling group that she is a part of and the wonderful work that they were doing. But she has returned to tell us all about Swedish curling. Uh, Sara is an accomplished curler in her own right, even though she will not... uh, she will not brag about herself, but she is, she is a world champion. So, uh, she has competed at the the highest level that the sport has to offer, and she's also part of the development team at Swedish Curling. So, we get into both how high performance is run in Sweden and also the things they are doing to try to increase the number of curlers in Sweden, especially coming off of winning a combined four medals at the Olympics and Paralympics. We get into the fact that recently the number of curlers in Sweden had been on the decline and what that could potentially mean for the Federation, but the things that they have done to to reverse that trend. So let's get into our conversation with Sara Carlson. All right. Well, we are honored to have Sara Carlson from Swedish Curling on the show again. Sara, you were a guest a while back when we were talking with uh, the, a lot of the, the group that, uh, you know, you guys are doing great work with the Global Initiative for DEI and Curling. But today it's just you and we're here to talk about Swedish Curling. So thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: We always start off by allowing listeners to get to know our guests a little bit more. So could you just tell us, you know, where you're from and and what was it like growing up there?
2: So I'm from Karlstad, um which is sort of right in between Stockholm and Oslo if you look on a map. Um I was um I've been here most of my life. Um It's like a typical middle-sized Swedish town, really with an eight-sheet curling rink and, I'd say, lots of access to nature and water. That will sum it up, probably.
1: So what what were some of your favorite things to do when you were growing up as a kid around Karlstad then?
2: Oh, I don't just, I guess your typical kid stuff, maybe not that related to Karlstad. Um, I would hang out in the stables and, you know, be outside with my friends. And then when I was, I think 12 or 13, I started curling and then that started taking up most of my time.
1: Uh, if someone was visiting Sweden for the first time, what's like the one thing you would tell them that they had to do, uh, while they were in Sweden?
2: I would say it depends on the weather. Uh, we're very weather sensitive uh, Swedes. Um, but if weather is good, you know, we actually have it in like, it's a law in Sweden. It's called the right to public access, um, which means that everyone is allowed to nature everywhere to set up a camp or to pick your berries or your mushrooms or hike. Like as long as you're not in anyone's backyard, then everywhere is uh, free access to everyone so oh, wow. i would suggest that you get some good use of that and if the weather is crap then um we also have a major culture around uh, drinking coffee and eating cake so and okay it's, it's you go <laughs> i'm a life. fan of
1: both of those things
2: <laughs> <laughs> they're very good to combine as well
1: and you said you started curling uh when you were 12 so how, how did you first get into curling
2: uh, I, like a lot of other people, had friends who were curling. So um, Lotte Lennartson, who played in our team up until 2012, she was curling and she was one of my best friends. So she brought me along.
1: Well, what was it about, about the sport that made you kind of stick with it and, and keep at it then?
2: I think that Costa Curling Club uh, at the time were very good at like catching juniors. It's like they really wanted juniors, so when they saw us step, like step into the room, they almost didn't allow us to leave. Um, <laughs> uh, and like ve- I think, very fast, they were missing players for some sort of bond spiel. So I think after just a couple of weeks, they put us all on a big bus and shipped us away to meet a bunch of other kids and play together. And like I think, once you get into that community, then then you're s- it, it, it's very easy to get stuck and to stay because it was a lot of fun.
1: And are you still playing now, either recreationally or, or competitively?
2: Uh, recreationally. Um, actually, I'm playing in the Swedish Mixed Championships in two weeks because it's in Karlstad. So I'm playing with the okay. CC Östlund um oh. and her partner and my partner was going to play too but he got a gig with his band so he got his priorities <laughs> way wrong <laughs> uh, and dropped our team so um uh, we found another guy to play with us. So they've been on the ice twice, uh, but they're very, very dedicated. So they actually called Oscar Eriksson last week and got him to come, <laughs> come down to the ice rink and hold the broom for them uh, <laughs> and help <laughs> them with sweeping drills and stuff. So you never know. It might be a success. Um,
1: well, if if you win, you will see Jonathan... Because he just won the English mixed.
2: Oh, you did? Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, Congratulations. Now I'm oh, going to have to make an effort. Yeah. Yeah, I
0: know. I'd be good if you can. That'd be fun.
1: Yeah. And then, uh, Sara, if you could just tell us, what did, what is your role with, with Swedish curling now?
2: So, my role would be sort of a, a development officer. Basically, it means that everything that's not elite sports is my responsibility because we're, we're quite a small, I mean, it's all relative, but quite a small organization. So I would say I, I got all of our clubs, like develop, club development, uh, junior adult programs, wheelchair curling programs. Um, I build and run our educational program. And then, you know, there's also like newsletters, social media, website, <laughs> administration, posting packages to different places and bits and pieces of everything. How
1: long have you been doing that?
2: Since 2013, actually. Oh, okay.
0: D- just help us kind of understand the context of Swedish curling. So how many curlers are there in Sweden and how many different curling rinks are there?
2: We have 30 dedicated curling facilities. Uh, We have about just a bit over 50 curling clubs. So quite a few of them play in like hockey rinks where they rent ice like one evening a week or twice a week or something like that. So we have quite a lot of clubs that work that way. And we are right now 3,670 curlers.
1: I do have a quick question about your arena clubs. It seems like there's kind of two ways of doing it. There's the US way, which is the hockey players get done, they Zamboni the ice, and we run out there, prep the ice as quickly as we can, and then play. And then there's the Scottish model where they take their time to convert from Hockey to curling, curl for a couple of days, and then convert back. It's, what's the kind of the what's kind of the typical system for those arena clubs that you have in Sweden? Do you know?
2: Yeah, I don't want to speak for everyone, uh, but I would say the option A: the curling <laughs> club gets like you have three hours on a Sunday night. Go. <laughs> Honestly, the work that they put in to play curling, it's amazing. And those clubs also seem to have like one, they have a really good work ethic within their club. It's like they really make an effort to curl. And it also seemed to give them a very social bond too. Like they mm-hmm. they go through so much work together just just to curl that they get really close friends and seem to have a lot of fun as well. So
1: Man, I'd kill for three hours an extra thirty minutes of ice prep would be <laughs> would be huge for our yeah. group. <laughs>
0: So what what's the average curler in Sweden like? Do they mostly start cuz their parents do it and are also curlers or are there other ways people enter the sport?
2: This is interesting cuz this is one of the things that I'm hoping we're just now seeing a change to. But just as I'd say most countries in curling like you start curling because you know someone that's a curler and they bring you along and during like olympic seasons us all of us that are existing curlers we are extra excited because it's olympics so we bring more of our friends but yeah that would be the main main way to get into curling
0: and are there different regions in the country where the sport's more popular or different rinks that are kind of famous for kind of having a lot of curlers in them
2: i'd say like the region around stockholm is like by far the biggest uh, when it comes to like the number of curlers but then also like city size, like Gothenburg also has a lot of members. But then it's like certain clubs have a bigger membership. But I won't say that it's like in a certain region or something. I'd say like Umeå, Härnösand, a couple of clubs up north, Gävle 2, Karlstad and a club named Norrköping and Jönköping. um, So mostly like a few clubs where they've Managed to build this during like a long time. And it seems also when you get like a critical mass, it's easier to grow from there. Uh, while some mm-hmm. clubs are just below there, and then it's really difficult to get bigger numbers.
0: And so, th- this is a, we got a lot of people who always ask about how high performance works in different countries. So, how does Swedish curling approach high performance programs and, and versus its grassroots programs? And are there separate strategies for the two?
2: Uh, yes and no. I think you need different strategies because it's actually really different things that drive grassroots sport versus what drives elite sports. And I mean, it's also different funding schemes. Like right now, there are common grounds as well and ways where you try to bridge uh, between grassroots and elite. But if you really want to be like, okay, really black and white, how it works, then you get like the Swedish Olympic Committee giving us money saying give us medals uh, mm-hmm. and then you have the swedish sports confederation giving us money saying grow your grassroots but of course we have conversations with them too about building elite sports and with with olympic committee about how we get kids involved so there are common grounds but basically there are also two like very different uh, very different strategies surrounding them
0: so let's say you're a competitive curler in sweden and you're not on team, a or team Hasselborg. So what, what would you do then? Is there are there ways that other curlers can earn their way into the elite program? Are there other kind of competitive curlers? I, I know the Rorano rinks, the other kind of one that we see in the slams, but are there kind of other competitive teams that are not quite in the slams, but kind of playing at a pretty high level, or is it just a few elite teams and then mostly grassroots?
2: Yeah, I think this is also one of our like the main things where, where we need to work. Like the entire curling world is seeing this right now that it's like the elite is becoming a super elite and it's really difficult to get depth because how do you find the curlers that put in that amount of time and work to actually become that good? But the way the program works in Sweden is we have national championships and then we have like a super league.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: if you win either of them, Then you earn a spot on the national squad and then our head coach also has you can if you're high enough on the rankings you can also get selected into the squads but then you have to be like a high ranked team Hmm. in the world so that leaves us with one to three teams in the national squad every season these teams get funding and they get support like camps and other resources around their team and they get funding to, for competitions and then among the teams in the national squad stop me now if this gets like to, no this is really interesting actually yeah um you, we normally have like a day so for europeans let say that we have three teams in the national squad so some like a month before the europeans it'll be like okay the team amongst you that are ranked the highest will go to europeans
0: Okay. And then the,
2: that that decision still has to pass through a board board every season and stuff. But um, basically, you always have a chance to get into the squad for next season every year.
1: Like the other day, I saw Team Adin got upset at Swedish Nationals and a different yes. team won. So that team will then have the opportunity to get funding next season. Yes.
2: And because Team Adin does not play in the Super uh, Series... That would be an opportunity for a third team, In ca- un- unless Team Landelius, who won the Nationals, unless they go win the Super Series 2, mm. that could be another team that would then get promoted uh, into the oh, wow. National squad.
1: Could the high-performance director or any anyone on or, or the board or whatever decide, okay, a player hasn't met the standard that we have for the national program and we're going to replace this player with someone from a different team
2: we we don't mess with the teams uh, okay. themselves um, like if you earned a spot in the squad then you've earned the spot but we do have certain demands of the teams in the squad uh, so they sign sort of a contract and so they have to live up to like a few sort of basic standards okay. to, to be national squad teams okay. But then we fund the teams in the squad. We have a little bit of funding that goes towards development teams that want to compete so they can apply for funding for, for specific competitions. But no, we don't we don't kick players, individual players off teams and replace them with others at the moment. So right now you you come in as a team um, and it's up to the team to stay together or not.
0: Okay. The other thing I'm really interested in is how junior curling works in Sweden, because obviously Sweden is also very good at the junior level. Someone mentioned to me that there's something called a junior curling academy or high school, uh, basically a sports high school where elite juniors go. But is that how Sweden develops its junior curlers? And you know, how, how would developing juniors get onto the national team? Is it also a play down system?
2: The Swedish Curling Academy is a high school where you have curling on your schedule. So it's in Härnösand. And I'd say that's one of the main like places to develop juniors because you have dedicated ice, you have hired trainers like, and teachers who are there to teach curling. But of course, this also happens on a club level because not everyone at the age of fourteen or fifteen are ready to leave home and move away and stay in, stay in another place and go to school. So, but if you're not in the curling academy, then that then your development sort of becomes like depending on your local club having those resources for you. Like, do you have a coach that can they can help you? Is there enough access to good ice, etc.? So, but. Among also like in the curling academy, except for training curling, we also make sure that they get other education. So they get a good grounds in ice making. We train them to be umpires, competition managers, and junior training trainers uh, as well with their uh, curling education. But for world juniors, for example, we, we have a play down. It's a national championship and winner goes.
1: You mentioned that you were up above thirty six hundred curlers, which is which is up over the previous number that I saw, and we'll we'll get into that so has has the success of the four Olympic and Paralympic teams led to an increase in in curling interest in Sweden?
2: The Olympics always raise interest in curling. Uh, Because everyone loves watching curling on TV. And the broadcasters also said that curling had the highest viewer numbers out of all of the sports in the Olympics. If a Swede was meddling somewhere else so that they were like, okay, we're going to leave curling for one minute to watch this person uh, (laughs) do their race because they might medal now. Then people will just phone them like crazy and tell them (laughs) to get curling back (laughs) on. So that was really cool news for us. So the interest is up really high. But I also want to make, like last year, you saw this too, Ryan. Last Olympics, when we also got a gold and a silver, that season we ended up a minus in membership. Mm -hmm. I think we were minus 123 or something. But this season, we're actually up 18%. And we have a 72% increase in juniors right now.
1: So has there been kind of a change in how the sport is covered by the media there? How were were the four medals that you won covered?
2: I think it's always been covered really well. Um, So the interest and the rates, like the amount of people who want to try curling, has always been massive around the Olympics (laughs) because it's always been covered. We don't get a lot of summer Olympic medals in Sweden, but during the winter Olympics is sort of when we have our, our stride. So curling in the winter Olympics is huge, of course, because Swedish curlers tend to medal.
1: And so what was it like for your curling centers after, after the Olympics and Paralympics? What was the rush like, uh, with people wanting to, to try curling? Did you see like a, just a huge increase compared to previous years?
2: Compared to a normal week, it's crazy. <laughs> like, I'm actually, yeah. so for some clubs, I'm really scared that they're just going to burn out all their volunteers completely because they are all working around the clock. Swedish curling clubs typically do not have people hired. It's basically mm-hmm. maybe one person doing, like, a half time job in the curling rink and the rest is volunteer. So they they are completely overwhelmed. And all the sheets of ice are full during all of the hours of the day, which they always are. But I think this time our clubs have have generally done an amazing job of thinking outside the box and offering new things and also being better at offering curling. So um, they're doing a few things different uh, and right now uh, it's working.
1: Yeah, I can I can definitely relate to the, the burnout. Um, <laughs> but you said that you said they've been trying different things, and I saw where the curling center in Yavla uh, advertised that they have open hours where people can actually come and try the sport for free. There is is that common with the curling centers in Sweden? And then, what are some of the other like unique ways that the curling centers in Sweden have have tried to entice people to come out and try the sport?
2: Uh, it is common. Um I would say that most clubs have open hours for free uh, several times during the season mostly in connection to school breaks during the fall and the spring. It's normally free or like very cheap. But I think what most many of the clubs have been doing now first of all we've done like a really big social media campaigns where we've actually we got we got funding and we also got to use a bit of that funding where we have paid to sponsor the the social media campaigns also for the clubs um we made films and we made like we made a campaign called my new sport basically moving away from showing Anna Hasselborg and Niklas Eddin <laughs> and just showing people who try curling and have fun because I mean, Anna and Nicholas draw a lot of attention because they are superstars. But if you sit at home and watch them on TV, you don't necessarily relate to them and think that, yeah, I can go do what they do." So we tried something different i got I actually got the numbers like on average, if you have like Advertising on social media, it's like a 0.13% average on click rates. We have a 15% on average click rates on our social media campaigns. So that's huge. Not 0.
1: 0.15, no, just 1.5.0. No, one yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> that's incredible.
2: <laughs> so that's good. So we've getting our clubs to market their beginner courses and stuff through social media and through these campaigns. And because our clubs are are all volunteers, and not all of them are very comfortable with using social media and this type of advertising, we just uh, we just went in and had someone take control of their accounts and do it for them. Just you tell us who you want to market it to. What are your dates? What are your times? What image do you want to use, or what f- move? What 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 film do you want to use? And we've just gone in and done it for them, and it's it's been very successful. So that's been one thing but then we've also been like working for a lot of years I'd say moving up to this with a certain clubs to just do it a bit differently like people are not going to start curling if we keep offer them uh come try curling and then join a league like you're stuck in this 2 hour sessions on Monday and you need a four person team like people don't really buy into that um so we we have really been working with getting clubs resources so that they can develop their own plan and make up things that are more fun, more easy to access faster with, I listened to your episode about practice, (laughs) because this was one of the things that we like, we did like a survey, like a major survey of curlers actually who are 65 years and older, but I would say that the results are probably applicable to like from juniors Uh, Like from when you end juniors and up People don't practice curling Like we have people who have been curling their entire life And they have never practiced But once they are offered practice They love it Like it's so much fun You learn a lot Like you improve your game So a lot of clubs have started like adult practice groups Mm. Where you like you pick You pick okay today we do balance drills For 20 to 30 minutes And then you play a game and then you know that, okay, this is available on Mondays. I don't have to come every Monday. It's just an hour. It's easy. And then people start bringing their friends and they grow. And also like things like triples or doubles or s- things where you can just show up as a single person rather than... And and you don't have to show up every time. You get maybe just draw out of a hat and put in, into a team if you want a game or there's a practice. or I think Things like this has made it more fun to be a curler in our clubs, too.
1: And so the the success is there. Like you said, you're up 18, 18%, I think you said, and what that's like 600, 600 people, basically getting yes. from close to 3,000 to over 3,600. And we you talked about how from 2018 to, or what I read was from 2015 to 2021, Um, your number of curlers dropped from 4,100 to a little over 3,000. And so other than the obvious and not wanting to have your numbers decline, there was a specific reason why it was important to stay over 3,000. Can you just kind of go into that?
2: Uh, Yeah, 3,000 is sort of the limit where the Swedish Sports Confederation will count you as like a major sports organization. So if you drop below Basically, we lose a majority of our government funding. And if we do that, then I guess my job might be gone. I don't know. Like the implications could be pretty, like we wouldn't, we wouldn't at all be able to support our clubs.
1: And so even, even before the Olympics and the Paralympics, what were some of the strategies you were using to try to reverse that trend?
2: An important thing are like Swedish curling don't have members we have curling clubs Mm. and our curling clubs have members. Of course, this is how it works. So our job is to make sure that we provide our curling clubs with the tools to create, to have good working clubs, attractive clubs with good, like where there's fun, where it's fun to be. So we've been working with our clubs really hard to make them look over their strategy and basically if you create a space where people enjoy being and if you have a plan then recruitment will come as a result so there's been a lot of focus on structure what is it that you offer your members in what times how can you make it more accessible and then also major focus on training uh, like coaches or like grassroots leaders like for juniors for wheelchair it's still very small but and also for adults
1: how receptive were the clubs to kind of to to making those changes because i can speak from experience over here that there might be a few clubs or curling centers that that may be a little stuck in their ways and not as not as willing to to make changes like what they how they structure their ice time or how they offer it
2: yeah it's <laughs> to start with we've actually picked a few clubs where we've funded them quite heavily as well they get funding but we only pay them once they have done certain educational programs and it doesn't mean that we tell them exactly what to do but it means that we force them to have the strategical conversation and also offer them different type of in- inputs And where we've also made sure that if you are part of a club that gets this type of funding, we expect you to have X and X amount of coaches or trainers in our educational programs too. And then those clubs are starting to grow. So then it gets attractive to others. And I think once a few clubs sort of started seeing that, oh, we do this and we get lots of members, then... It, it's it's a lot easier to promote that forward.
0: So in addition to getting the numbers up, what other goals does the Swedish Curling Association have and over the next couple of years?
2: We have like four grassroots sports. Uh, we get from the Swedish Sports Confederation like different topics. Okay, these are your strategic topics. Uh, tell us what you're going to do. So we sort of get the headlines from the Swedish Sports Confederation and then we get to analyze our like what we do and what's important to us and what do we believe in how are we going to work within this like headline or, or topic for juniors uh, and within Sweden you're you're considered youth up to like 25 we have goals connected to the number amount of coaches that we want educated every season for our clubs because obviously clubs that have junior coaches do better junior curling they attract more and they keep more members we are looking to have more youth participating in activities outside their own club so we have like a, a line of activities where we help clubs with concepts or like a regions with concepts where they can invite kids to move outside of the clubs, to get to know more kids and to... Because it's a small sport. So once you get to know other kids outside of your own club, then we're more likely to keep them because they make that those friendships. And also we have a sort of inclusion and diversity goal as well because we are a very homogenous sport. So to get more kids involved that are not... Would you say, ethnically, like Swedish, even if they are Swedish who are not white or do not come from a typically Swedish background. So that is also one of our goals. And then we have a strategic headlines, which is adult and older uh, grassroot curlers over the age of 25. So then we want to grow the numbers and we specifically want more women and more ethnical diversity. So that would be like the other goals. And then we also have goals for parasport, which is to have more clubs be active with uh, wheelchair curling.
0: So we've had you on before to talk about uh, the global initiative for DEI and curling. So obviously that's kind of a central passion of yours. So what what things are specifically are you doing with the Swedish Curling Association to help to help kind of achieve those goals, you've kind of highlighted how several of them are into your long-term strategy. So, what what actions are you doing to make the sport more diverse to kind of include more people from para sport? Uh, other steps you're taking to kind of uh, kind of achieve DEI goals?
2: Yeah. So again, like as a national association, like we don't recruit curlers. We have to make sure that our clubs can. We <laughs> I'm going to say we force them, uh, but we. <laughs> We make sure that our clubs have good like educational programs. Like right? We're quite early in this. So rather than going out and just being like, "Hey, come to curling, we have to first make sure that if people who are othered uh, in curling feel comfortable when they just come into the curling club. So we've spent a lot of time working with our clubs, talking about norms and how your structures and activities can affect people who are, not part of the norm in your curling club so we have built like an educational program around that we have education for our boards and nominations committee and staff and then we have education for club boards and then it's been also included in all of our if we if we hold courses for trainers or coaches they also get this type of training so we've spent a lot of time building those programs and also we then link it to funding. So when clubs come to us for funding, because sometimes we have funding for different projects through the Sports Confederation. So we say, welcome to the program. First you prove that you've done this course, then we pay you the money. So no matter sort of what you wanna work on, if you want funding, then you first, we first make sure that you've had this conversation within your club. We have, I think, 10 clubs that's gone through the training right now. Like, I think first you need to make sure that you've had that conversation when you looked over the environment that you have in your club and the way you structure, and then you invite new curlers to your club.
0: Another thing that's in your um, kind of long-term plan document is that you're trying to change the fee structure for Swedish curling. I know... I know fees are always a big fight. Like in our national <laughs> association, every every AGM we have a fee conversation. So, yeah, can you, can you talk about what the details of that plan are and how that fits into kind of increasing your your membership numbers?
2: Yeah, I'll give it a go. <laughs> um, <laughs> so basically, to make it easier, I'll just say that ten Swedish kroners is a dollar. Like I think it's pretty close, but then it it'll be more like easier to talk about it. So today we have the structure where if you're an adult curler, the fee that the club pays to the curling association is $31 per adult curler. And it's 17 for a junior. And that's it. That goes for everyone. So basically, what we are suggesting is a system where that membership fee is a lot lower. And then we add a license fee for the people who want to compete. That's basics and we have the license fee that's suggested right now is in three different levels depending on what level of competitions you want to do and then we have a first year membership today but we've added in that so the first year that you're a member the actual membership fee that the club has to pay towards the curling association is two and a half dollars per person so basically the purpose is to Lower the barriers to become a member in the first place and also put in incentives for the club so that they can add membership in their beginners courses and like, just make it easier to ask the question, like, do you want to be a member of our club?
0: Did you, did you take this structure from a different association?
2: Basically, all of the other sports in Sweden have this structure. So I think for now, it's just curling and skateboard. Uh, that do not separate the people Hmm. who are just club uh, club athletes or compared to competitive athletes and i think within skateboard it's because they say that they're not competing they like to gather and uh, show their abilities but it's not an actual competition or a league so that's why they don't have the licenses but when it comes to curling it's just because we've just never changed
0: and so this is up for a vote in april so has there been any feedback from any of the curling centers and what's the reaction been so far
2: yes, there has been feedback. <laughs> and I think it's, it's been one of those things that, you know, people either are like, yes, finally, something's happening. We're doing something new. And also the, you know, the thought that maybe it's not perfect, but let's try and move forward. Like, let's do something different and see if that works. So some people have been really positive and some people have been really negative. And then some people have been unsecure, but we've had a few meetings to talk about it. And I think the clubs that have joined the meetings have sort of switched from like a negative to like carefully being positive, but people are afraid of the administration and some people are afraid that there's going to be a slight increased cost of competitions. And some people, well, don't want things to change.
1: This all sounds incredibly familiar because the U.S. is currently <laughs> going through the exact same thing. I think they're trying to do a very similar change and have gotten very similar feedback. So in when you say competitions, you mean like national championship playdowns or does that include bond spills as well?
2: Uh, bond spills as well. But I think if you just okay. want to do bond spills outside your club, um, then that license fee is $5 in a year. And then it's if you play on a regional level or a national level.
1: You said most of the negative feedback is just people afraid of change.
2: Uh, no, but also I think there's a big insecurity about what, how are we doing this administration-wise. Hmm. Like, Is it going to be a lot of work for the clubs who already today are struggling with keeping up with their work? The answer is that initially it will be because we have to change the systems but we have a system and we've now had him called all the clubs to a meeting where we've gone through it and sort of try because i mean so far we're just guessing like we don't know Mm -hmm. i don't know maybe we change and it's crap i don't know either (laughs) but i what i know right now is that the structure that we have do not encourage recruitment and we are as a curling association we have to make it easier for clubs to recruit curlers and right now we are not doing that it also you know it's more digitalized with the new mm-hmm. system and some are going to love it and some are not going to love it but i think from what i've seen and tested i think once you've done the initial transfer it seems so much easier
1: yeah that's exactly what usa Curling's going through and you mentioned that the previous structure didn't uh, encourage recruitment. It could just tell us why that is and how these changes might make the sport more accessible.
2: Well, I think say that you are like you've done a come try curling, and the club asks you like, do you want to join a beginners course of five sessions? The membership is just two dollars, and it's included. No one's going to argue. They're just going to become a member. Today, it's the membership. Like, this is the fee for the course, and we're adding $30 $30 for your membership. Mm. That's actually going to present quite a barrier. And you know what? The clubs are not even asking people to become members when this is the system. Because we're very careful in Sweden. and In curling, it's almost like we're making excuses for having, like... People, do you would you maybe like to pay the fee and like maybe you could be a member in a club? That's like we are so scared of asking people. And I think this has really changed this season. First, we we added the first year cheaper fee that we already have, and we're already seeing that our club is like, yeah, now we have a member, like a new beginner's course. It includes the membership, and here's the cost. And people don't question that, they just pay and they become members. And once you're a member, then you're a member, you identify as a curler, the club has your contact information, you feel more part of the community. And it's so much easier to retain people if they've said yes to membership uh, once. At least this is what I believe.
0: (laughs) No, that's true. I mean, we did that with our our rink, um, with our club. And it's exactly that there there the English curling association had a pretty, it was like 25 pounds, which is like actually a fair bit membership fee. And that didn't, that didn't differentiate between people who want to enter the national championships versus people who just wanted to join the club and play once a week. So we managed to get that down and then actually our rink membership, we've taken it from 80 to 160 this year. And it's a oh, lot of people amazing. like, okay, I'll just, you know, it's exactly that. It's like, they'll just join a tri curling league. Right. Or, yeah. So and that that you know that that just it just breaks that barrier. The ECA was kind of worried about the finances, but my attitude is that the association should just figure out other ways to make revenue. And the bigger <laughs> the association is, the better, right?
2: Yeah, and I think for us, like if we drop the membership rates, like the revenue that we're going to lose then is just it's going to destroy us. So. And we need more curlers, like not, like all money aside. Like we have, we have space to be to have so many more curlers, and like that would make everything so much more fun. So.
0: <laughs>
1: hmm. And so, are there any other governance changes that Swedish curling might look at to promote the growth of the sport?
2: I talked to like our secretary general about this earlier today, and I think we both felt like. If this passes, we don't know yet that it will, but we've spent the last like two years doing a lot of governance changes. And I think right now we just need to Mm. see if they're working. But then also looking at, you know, the the sort of the in between elite curlers who are not grassroots, but not the super elite teams as well. Like we, we do definitely need more development there so that we can retain them and keep them motivated and keep them active because um, it's difficult. It's difficult when the top mm-hmm. teams are getting so good.
1: That's the that's the problem that basically every association is facing. Are there have you heard any ideas on how to do that?
2: uh a few uh but none that i feel like i've like got a good explanation and and <laughs> it's good to go um but there are conversations but it's just really it's also really hard to know whose responsibility is it whose job is it because it's very clear whose job it is to get medals and it's very clear whose job it is to grow the grassroots uh, and then it's a sort of in between where we have to work together and find common ground between them and but it would be really good to have a position that be like this is this is someone's major responsibility, and we have a few people who are have doing like a few initiatives around Sweden and the, the Nordic region here now that I'm I'm excited about. And, but it's gonna be hard because the top teams are still gonna be so good.
1: So what's, what's the future of curling look like for Sweden? Do you think there are any like areas of the country or demographics that you say, think are going to see major growth in the coming years? I think I saw one of your goals is to double the number of women curlers in Sweden.
2: Yes, because it's really low. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think this is one thing that's actually happening right now that... So, I've been a part of Swedish curling, working for Swedish curling since 2013. All of this time, we've had 19% female curlers, like overall. It's a higher, like more equal in juniors and really unequal among our oldest members when it comes to gender balance. But since just the new years of 2022, the numbers are now, we're 22% women. So among the new curlers that are coming in right now, I think we're actually breaking the recruit your friends pattern. New people are coming in that have just found curling somewhere else and it's a more, it, it's a more balanced group. So we definitely need to keep working on that. I think we also have a lot more to do when it comes to school programs and floor curling. Because we're just starting to dig into that, uh, and there's a lot of interesting things that are happening, and I think it's going to keep keep growing and keep keep finding ways to work with that.
0: So again, again, here, what's interesting is in juniors, I'd say we have more more junior women's teams than we have junior men's teams. But then, as soon as they age out, we we just seem to leak women. Mm-hmm. I don't know what what happens. I'm not sure if you have that problem too, and if you wonder what might be happening there.
2: I don't know that we leak women just when they're out of juniors, but I do know that when it comes to adults, we seem to attract and retain men.
0: Hmm.
2: And that's probably because we mostly have men, adult men curling, and they bring other adult men curling. And it's also, I think, general in society, adult women don't have hobbies outside of the home in the same way that men do, Hmm. you know, because of just gender normativity. And also, like, I think when when you start breaking down the, you know, you play in your league for your two hours with your four team this time, like, okay, so I am 35 and I have two kids. That's not happening. Like, I don't have that time. <laughs> and it goes for a lot of men too. But I think, like, for me, if I want to curl, I want to call my two friends and be like, do you want to go tomorrow? Because I have an opening and we can throw a few rocks and have fun for an hour, Uh, And they will say yes, and we will go. So if I have that opportunity, I'm much more likely to curl. I think just changing the way that we are structured will make it a lot more likely to get more women too.
1: And then my my last question, looking at your clubs, I was impressed by the number of them that had wheelchair curling programs. I think percentage-wise, it's probably much higher than Sweden than most other countries that I've looked at. Like what? why is that basically why is there a focus on parasport in sweden or is it just the clubs themselves doing the outreach
2: we have been working really 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 hard to grow wheelchair curling for like since i think 2014 it's still not near where i would love it to be but we actually have nine teams in competition this season wow in total Uh, Some of them are three-man teams and like they might not be full four-man teams. And some of them are formed like between different clubs. They put together teams, but it is nine teams. And I think I am happy with that, but there's still like we could grow that so much more. But yes, it's been a very deliberate process uh, for a long time working with developing wheelchair curling. And that said, we still have a lot to do also with other para sport and paratypes of curling because right now it is just a wheelchair curling. So there there are more areas to do work.
0: Thanks so much for joining us, Sarah.
2: No, thanks. Thanks for having me. It was really, really fun to just, you know, get attention to talk about Swedish curling for an hour.
0: Yeah, and good luck in the next. Hopefully you'll win. So
2: (laughs) Yeah, it'll be good to see you in Aberdeen. (laughs) Yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't have to high hopes, that's going to (laughs) happen.
1: Thank you for listening to Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast. If you enjoyed this show, we ask you to please leave a review or tell a friend about us. Your referrals to friends and family are the greatest compliment we can receive and is what allows our show to grow and share our love of this great game. You can find all of our past shows and blog posts at rocksacrossthepond.com. If you have a question or comment, you can reach us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to us, and we will talk to you again real soon.